Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like you to, is this the right volume? Is it too high? I'd like you to um, think for a moment to a significant experience or encounter that led you to the Dharma. Think of what your life was like up till that point and then I'd like you to just for a moment imagine that it never happened this is kind of if you see uh, the movie around every Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Probably everybody here has seen It's a Wonderful Life, where Clarence shows Jimmy Stewart what his life would have been like if this hadn't happened, or what everybody else's life would have been like if he hadn't been around, actually. Let's just imagine for a moment what your life would be like if you didn't have the Dharma in it and you never came to practice. Might have some pictures in the mind that probably don't look very different than 99.9% of the planet. interesting to let yourself imagine that. And just for a moment, get a sense of the impact of the Dharma coming into your life. The blessings, the power, the gift of the Dharma. like to read a passage that I just came across that uh, highlighted this for me. This is from uh, Shanti Deva. <coughs> As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all our all are invited. It's a feast of joy to which all are invited. And yet, isn't it curious that there is only 90 or so people here 
and very few people who have an inspiration or motivation to practice. And I won't just restrict this to Vipassana retreats, but who have a real yearning to awaken in their lives whatever practice or, or path resonates with them. Hearing that call, it's such a special and unique and amazing Well, grace is the word that I used the other night. I was thinking back to to my encounter, which was um, about, which was 20 years ago, after um, being very turned on by uh, Be Here Now, and getting something in the mail that talked about Naropa Institute, this first summer it was happening and I saw Ramdas was going to be there and I thought, oh, this is the person I want to meet. And just while I was there, coming into this class on essential Buddhism, actually Ramdas had suggested I take the class, and after just a few minutes feeling, my goodness, I've come home. My life might never be the same. It won't be the same. And I think about where I came from, just the, um, the suffering and the confusion and the, um, the real pain in my heart, feeling that I was kind of isolated, lonely, kind of trop, trop, dropped down from a planet, from another solar system, and somehow sorting things out as best I could here, but with lots of fears and insecurities and, um, and confusion. And how highly motivated I was once I heard the possibility of not being lost in my neurotic patterns. That was very exciting to me. I believed it. So when you go through your suffering and your confusion and it seems like there's no end to it, this is a very, very um, potent seed if you can be here for it because suffering is what deepens our, our compassion. And suffering is often the wake-up call for, for many of us. This is why the Buddha taught the first noble truth about there being suffering in life. And once we hear that call and we have some kind of understanding that there's something more to life than what we've been told by the general society, we have a sense of vision, a sense of well, in the Eightfold Path, the second link, right aspiration. We see the possibility of a direction in our life that perhaps before we were searching in some kind of nebulous way for some kind of meaning. And here, a possibility of a direction. In the, um, the teachings on clear comprehension, Carol often talks about this, in a beautiful way. The first clear comprehension, the clear comprehension of purpose, having a sense of what you're about, what your life is is committed to here in this lifetime. And it just infuses us with some uh, inspiration and direction. And that vision keeps on getting clarified over time. And it's a wonderful process of just seeing how we're motivated by different things at different times and getting our vision more and more clarified in our hearts. I just had an experience um, last month that helped once again clarify and reconnect with the vision in a powerful way. That was... um, 
I was going to um, to this conference in India in Dharamsala, and my plane was landing in uh, in Frankfurt for a stopover, and uh, it was suggested, and it was a good suggestion, um, that I might want to stop and see Mother Mira, who lives just a couple of hours train ride from from Frankfurt before I go to the conference. So. Um, I, I had been kind of a friend had given me a picture of her, and I, she's a it's beautiful picture. You know, I found myself feeling really happy looking at it. So I said, "Okay, I'll go there." And when you're when you're there, you, um, you, in your mind or in your heart, often uh, ask for what's really important to you, and supposedly she can you know, grant your blessings. So you go there and. You go in, and one person at a time, out of about 120 people or so that are there, go up, sit in front of her, put your head in her near her lap, and she touches you and does something on your head, who knows what. Then she lets you sit up, and then you look at each other in the eye, and she's kind of beaming you a kind of energy, doing something. And that's it. And it's about, oh, 45 seconds or so, 50 seconds, and then the next person comes. So you go there. I was there for four nights, and I wanted to make my 45-second time count. Right? <laughs> and in, in a way, it kind of heightens the clarity in your, in your heart. You go a long distance to sit in front of somebody for 45 seconds it gets you clear on what's important to you. And I think that was the greatest value of the whole experience. As I was sitting there, and I, I didn't go up right away, and I kind of check out a scene and want to see what's, what's happening, and also I just wanted to take time to get in touch. What really matters? What really matters to me? I guess before I'll, I'll share with you what really matters to me, I'll, as long as you're in that mode, just get in touch with what really matters to you. Imagine 45 seconds to sit in front of somebody who will grant your boon. What would you wish for? There's a time in that process where it just kind of clicks, yes. And so what I uh, got in touch with were three things. I went back and forth between whether or not to, to share this, but I've shared it with a couple of people, so now it's kind of, I don't think it'll dissipate the energy to say it. And they're not very esoteric or you know, unusual things maybe not so different from what you thought. But when I felt it with a genuine sincerity, it gave it power. I said, may my heart be pure. May I serve my family, my friends, and my community as best I can. May I serve the Dharma well. And sitting in front of her, it's kind of like a high ritual where you are being witnessed by the universe. And it has stayed with me this last month. So, Getting back to this idea of hearing the call and the different crossroads in our life. And when I asked you a moment, I'm going to put this down a bit. When I met, asked you a moment ago um, to think of the one experience, the one encounter, of course, you can't just separate one out. 
there's a whole series of encounters that we call our life that is a process. And when I think about my life, the things that led me to want to go to Colorado or um, get in, exposed to be here now or what led me before, 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 before. It's a whole process where there were a number of different crossroads in my life and I say this just as one story. This is all of our stories. A number of different crossroads in our lives where we could have gone either way. We could have gotten into more bitterness. We could have gotten into more confusion, more um, anger, more doubt and loss of faith. But somehow, even though it's not a linear process, there seems to be a guidance that has brought us all to this point together, sharing this moment. And now I ask, how did that happen? What has happened? How is it that we're so um, unique Actually, this is interesting coming from a Jewish background. And one of the things that I, that I had most difficulty with, uh, with my Jewish background is, although I, I really respect it and I honor it, was the idea of being a chosen, one of the chosen people. You know, where the, I've chosen God. So I'm not talking about us being special in, the, in any kind of ego sense, but it's just a mystery why it is that we've been touched by the Dharma. And here I would like to um, put a Buddhist perspective on this process. And that is thinking of this as a path of purification. That we have within us, within all of us, this seed of awakening which is referred to as bodhicitta this place in all of us that wants to be free that yearns to be free and sometimes it gets nourished sometimes it gets watered and and given fertilizer and gets exposed or gets shaken in some way that cracks open the the shell and it starts to sprout and get rooted. And here when I talk about the term path, I just want to qualify something. Because the word path is a tricky one and we've been talking a number of times about the fact that Awakening and freedom is right here, right now. And this is true. I deeply believe that. However, although it's here all the time, we forget a lot of the time. And this is a problem. And so there is a process at the same time as there is a, uh, an immediacy to freedom, there is a process of more and more allowing ourselves and remembering to reside in this place of freedom. And so both are true, the, the gradual and the sudden experience of awakening. And as I mentioned, I think it was in the first course, rather than thinking of, of it in a linear process, and the word path might be a little misleading to begin with because it is linear. It seems like you're here, and you want to get to here. It seems much more helpful to think of it as an opening process, like a a mandala or a flower opening up, learning to open up to the present moment. And along the way, there are certain major landmarks of opening. But until it's completely finished, there's still more, more to do. And where you're opening to is always here and now. It's the only time there is, and it's the only place there is. So in this process of purification, 
we can realize that we're not going anywhere. We're simply coming right into here. But now, this sense of purification of process from the Buddhist perspective, this term grace can be thought of as developing certain forces of purity within ourselves, within this mind-body process that we call ourselves, that continue the opening. And there are two particular ways or two particular um, aspects to this these forces of purity. There's purity of conduct and purity of wisdom. And there are certain fields of action that infuse these two areas, purity of conduct and wisdom. Purity of conduct has a foundation, two fields of action that allow us to continue to open and hear, receive the Dharma and receive blessings in our lives. That is generosity and virtue. The three altogether, the three purifying forces, dana, sila, bhavana in the texts. Generosity, virtue, and meditation. I'll first talk about the dana and sila aspects in this purity of conduct. Purity of conduct means if our actions are coming from a place of generosity of spirit and from non-harming, then the result of that, the karmic result, will be wonderful circumstances coming back to us. That there is a law of cause and effect here. Doesn't often happen on our own timetable or our schedule. That's one of the problems with, with karma and gets kind of confusing. Well, I was nice to that person, but you know, I've got a headache right now. How did that happen? <laughs> or I've really put in a, a lot of time in giving and generosity of spirit and these, these difficulties are happening in my life. What's going on here? It's a much, much, much bigger picture than just what's happening from week to week or year to year. It's lifetime to lifetime. Many lifetimes to many lifetimes. So you've got to have a very large reference to hold this whole thing. But it seems that there is a lawful unfolding to the universe that actions have consequences. And we can have an immediate sense of the power of, of our actions. Just, just think of when you're around somebody who is generous what it evokes in you. Is it the same as when you're around somebody who's a bit um, tight or insecure with their resources? Might be a little bit different. When I'm around somebody who's generous, I want to be generous back. Isn't that so? And so you can see the immediate consequence of coming from that place. And when people are generous back to you, then it feels good and there's good circumstances that come and all sorts of opportunities that come. So it doesn't take a whole lot of esoteric figuring out. Now, just a word about the quality of uh, generosity and giving. The Buddha said, that there are three elements to um, a powerful gift or the act of giving. One, the purity of the gift, whatever it is that is being given. Two, 
the purity in the heart of the giver. What is your intention in the gift? And three, the purity of whoever it is that's receiving. And now, you might think, oh, well, that means I should only give to nice people and not to you know, nasty people. Well, that's kind of underselling this because if you think of bodhicitta as appearing as the potential in all of us, if there is a way that we can connect, even with somebody who's lost in confusion, so that they really receive with a purity of that transmission. That seems to be a worthwhile thing to do. And it's wonderful to nourish this bodhicitta when you, uh, when you can. One of my main inspirations is um, Neem Karoli Baba, Ram Dass's guru from, from his books. And he was, he was the energy that really touched me uh, to begin with. And he has a wonderful instruction. He says, keep on tuning into the good in people. Even when you know all the garbage about them, keep on going for the good. It's like keep on tuning into that bodhicitta, that place that really yearns to be free. And the more you can see that, the more you're nourishing those seeds and they can start see it in, seeing it in themselves. And again, just think how it is when somebody sees you and knows all your faults and is, is busy evaluating them, how that feels, as opposed to somebody who knows all your faults and sees the beauty in you. It draws it out more and more. So this field of action of dana, of giving, is a very opening quality and there's a karmic consequence to it. A second field of action is that of sila, of virtue. And those are including the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. Um, not killing, not stealing, not being unskillful in sexuality, um, being careful with speech, and uh, not abusing intoxicants. Now, you can think of this as a list of good, goods and bads, and you might feel like you're back in Sunday school or however it strikes you, but they're really a tremendous protection. It, it has the common denominator, all of those precepts, of giving the gift of harmlessness to our world. And there's a certain protection that we feel with, within ourselves when we act in a virtuous way. It feels good to be coming from a place of integrity. Doesn't it? I remember when I was um, uh, in Bodhgaya, uh, this is in 1982, and for a short time I ordained as a, as a monk. Oh, Jack mentioned it the other night you know, when I was... You can see the video at some time on the elephant. <coughs> and for a few weeks I wore robes and it was amazing the feeling that I, that I felt. You know, it was like I had this protective shield. It was, you remember the old Colgate commercial? You know, guard all, you know. You know. It was semi-permeable. It still, I still felt the connection with everyone, but I felt protected from unskillful forces. It's very powerful. In some ways, uh, my wedding ring is, is the guard wall shield you know, sometimes. Just the protection in there. Whatever it is for you, you know, that inspires you to remind yourself of your commitment to integrity, it's a very powerful protection. And it feels good to act with that sense of virtue. There's a, a lovely, a beautiful line that, that moves me from the Buddhist teachings. He says, the bliss of blamelessness is something beautiful. The bliss of blamelessness. That sense of ease and a clean heart, you know, where you don't have to hide, you don't have to 
um, pretend that you're something other than you are. And again, the karmic results of coming into your life in that way are good circumstances coming back to you. How is it when you're around somebody who leads their life that way? It's a very easy way to get a lot of friends when they realize that you're not going to threaten them and you have their welfare at heart. And then the... Okay, so those two, Donna and Sila, are developing the force of purity, or the Pali term is parami, the forces of purity, paramis, the, the parami of conduct. And what that does is give you good circumstances and also the opportunity to hear the Dharma. That gets you to uh, hear a discourse or uh, have a book drop in your lap or whatever it is, be touched by a friend in some way that says, oh wait, there's something here. And then the, set, the, the next force of purity, the next parami is the parami of wisdom. And what that is, and what that is, and that is developed by the meditation by bhavana, that gives you the chance to not only hear the Dharma, but practice it. And as you practice it, then you have the chance to receive everything that the Dharma offers you. And the deepest one being the highest peace, being freedom. Seeing through the illusion to discover who you really are what the Buddha talked about, the highest happiness is peace. And as we here are doing the meditation, we are developing very powerful forces of purity in our hearts and in our minds. It just so happens that mindfulness is a purifying force. Just feeling your breath as it comes in and goes out, lifting your foot and putting it down. This is a very powerful force, although it seems pretty mundane, pretty bland, not lights flashing, not your heart ripping open. Don't underestimate those moments of mindfulness because what they do is condition ourselves to let go in the moment, to not grasp it, to open up to it with courage, to open up to it with presence. And as we awaken, as we open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds, we see what's really here. Things become revealed. So this quality of bhavana, this quality of mindfulness, is very potent. And it actually is developing the other forces as well, it develops the spirit of generosity. Perhaps you've had moments in the last couple of days of gratitude and bubbling forth and and wanting to serve the Dharma or wanting to to share what you've learned from a a clear and pure place. And it also shows you the power of acting with integrity in your life. Not stirring up the mind, confusing it with, with more grasping or uh, unskillful actions. So the interesting thing is that when you are really touched by a vision, that when you aim for the highest, you get everything else along the way. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to stop for you know, the first station and say, well, I'll make sure I get that goodie and then go on to the next. No, you're limiting yourself. If you aim for the highest vision and the highest ideal, everything else gets developed along the way. I'd like to read to you from the uh, Mangala Sutta on blessings. Find it here. There it is. 
kind of talks about what I'm talking about. The Mangala Sutta, the great discourse on blessings. At one time, the exalted one was living in a Jetta grove. A certain deity of astounding beauty approached the exalted one and said, Many deities and humans have pondered on blessings. Tell me the blessings supreme. The Buddha replied, To associate not with the foolish, to be with the wise, to honor the worthy ones, this is a blessing supreme. To reside in a suitable location, to have good past deeds done, to set oneself in the right direction, this is a blessing supreme. To be well-spoken, highly trained, well-educated, skilled in handicraft, and highly disciplined, this is a blessing supreme. To be well-caring of mother, of father, to look after wife and children, to engage in a harmless occupation, this is a blessing supreme. Outstanding behavior, blameless action, open hands to all relatives, and selfless giving, this is a blessing supreme. To cease and abstain from evil, to avoid misusing intoxicants, to be diligent in virtuous practices, this is a blessing supreme. To be reverent and humble, content and grateful, to hear the Dharma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To be patient and obedient, to visit with spiritual people, to discuss the Dharma at the right time, this is a blessing supreme. To live simply and purely, to see the noble truths, and to realize nirvana, this is the blessing supreme. A mind unshaken when touched by the worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the blessing supreme. Those who have fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible. They find well-being everywhere. Theirs is the blessing supreme. So now you can have a calling, you can have the vision, you can have the direction, you can practice these forces of purity, of uh, generosity, of virtue, of meditation. But if your paramis are strong, you will be blessed with a real passion for the Dharma. And perhaps what's most essential for that passion is to let it fill you when your faith is strong, to be touched by it, to let it go right in and see how incredibly special this opportunity is what's really important in my life. And when you feel that, when you feel that faith, to nurture it. Because otherwise, practice and awakening just becomes a hobby. You know, it's a nice thing to do. It's a nice way to spend my time, go on a 10-day retreat. Until you get to the second day, then you might rethink that one. <laughs> but when you can really let yourself be touched by the practice, filled with inspiration and it happens you know it's such a privilege to be in interviews and see see people just get connected with their hearts and feel the power of that then the passion really starts getting nurtured and there's different ways that people can feel that passion there's what are called um, the bases of success 
that fuel the practice. I'll just share them very briefly. Different people have different temperaments that give energy for practice. Some people have what's called chanda, zeal. These are called, these bases of success are called the idipadas. Chanda, zeal, or enthusiasm. They're just naturally enthusiastic people, or naturally passionate people. And you can use that for practice. Early on, uh, somebody uh, who's who's not here right now was in the retreat. He's a big uh, sports fan, and he requested me for interviews because he heard that I was a sports fan. And he said, "So, uh, come on, what's what's the story with this? You know, it just seems like you sit here, you watch your breath. You know, big deal. You know, I want some intensity, right?" And I can remember, um, actually I told him this, um, going to, to Joseph that first summer. It was a big question for me. I remember one, one day when we were meditating wearing my New York Nick t-shirt. I was a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks in their glory years, if you happen to be a basketball fan. Um, and I remember going up to Joseph at the end of the retreat and saying, hey listen, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and say, Nice shot, Fraser. Very nice shot. <laughs> it was it was a major hurdle in my practice. He uh, he assured me I wouldn't, and he was right. I'm just as passionate now as I was then, and you know. It, you know what's happening in the 49er games if you're within five blocks of my house. (laughs) But that passion can be directed for the Dharma. If you happen to have that as part of your temperament, to just give it all into this moment, a passion for waking up, it's tremendous if that's your temperament. And in fact, I got passionate about something that helped me get a bit more centered and connected. Another kind of temperament is uh, is that what's called virya idipada, a kind of person who just has strong determination and perseverance and will not be deterred. They just kind of, they're going to do it, going to do it. And firm resolution, not to be wavering because of things getting a little unpleasant or tough, but just that real steadfastness. And some people are like that. It's important if you're of that temperament to temper that with a light touch, because otherwise it can easily get to be a grim and contracted experience. So my attitude when I practice is to put my heart into it and to keep it light. Remember, this is not about struggling and striving. But to use that willingness to be here for anything as a force in your practice. It's a tremendous attribute if you can use it wisely. A third temperament or a third way that people have their practice fueled is what's called citta idipada. Citta is like bodhicitta, the heart or the mind being touched deeply. And this is, this is something that happens when you've met the Dharma, encountered it, and truly have, have felt its impact in a deep and powerful way. And when that happens, at times, for some people, it's so compelling that everything else pales in comparison. It's not to uh, deny the importance of, of family and friends and community and, um, and your life, but they all are held in this reference of 
loving the Dharma. I've told the story many times about getting in touch with the fact that we love the Dharma. And I think each of us has that to some extent or another. It's not like these, these different temperaments are all one and not others. We all have blends of them. When you are touched by loving the Dharma, when it's not just a homework assignment, but you are compelled to keep on coming into that place of purity or whatever it is for you that is so um, fulfilling, this becomes a tremendous force for passion and practice. And then there's uh, the last one, which is called Vimamsa Idipada. Or through investigation, through really seeing the truth of things, the actual situation, we realize that this is a very precious opportunity. And sometimes, well, it's a lot like what Carol was talking about in her first talk in this retreat, this sense of urgency not coming out of fear, perhaps it can, it can be fueled by fear, but just from an understanding that you don't want to waste this opportunity because it doesn't happen very often. So precious, the reflections that uh, the Tibetans have of the amazing karma that brings you to this point, to utilize it, to fully appreciate it to realize how impermanent things are and death is what awaits us and who knows what's going to happen next. Who knows what karmic fruit will, will be born if we don't make the most of this opportunity. Who knows what different realms there, there are that, that we might be around in for a while. And the preciousness of being born in human form is a very unusual opportunity. Think of all the billions of life forms on this planet. Billions and billions and billions, trillions, zillions, whatever it is. You know, there's five billion people. Think of how many ants there are. <laughs> I read once that if you, put a, if you had a scale large enough and put all the humans on one scale and the ants on the other side of the scale, the ants would be 65 times heavier. Can you imagine that? How many ants that would take? Now, when you think about all the other species, there's a few things besides ants on this planet. You know. It's mind-boggling. And here we are in this human form, and here we are with the circumstances and the inclination and the opportunity to practice how rare it is even within this human form to make the most of this. It's amazing. That can fuel tremendous inspiration for practice. So, whatever it is, that turns you on, so to speak. When you feel that, to let it bring your commitment into the moment. Because every moment that you're here, you are developing those forces of purification in your heart that bear very powerful karmic results. And then, with that, you want to share your blessings. You want to extend as you understand the interconnectedness that we all have, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for everyone because there's no separation. And that can be, again, another deep inspiration for practice, for the benefit of all beings. So I want to read, with, read to you and share this last part to close the sharing of the blessings. By the blessings that have arisen from my practice, may my venerable preceptors 
and teachers who've helped me, mother, father, and relatives, leaders, worldly powers, virtuous human beings, the supreme beings, demons, and high gods, the guardian deities of the world, celestial beings, the Lord of death, people, friendly, indifferent, and hostile, may all beings be well. May the skillful deeds done by me bring you threefold bliss. May this quickly bring you to the deathless. By this act of goodness and through the act of sharing, may I likewise attain the cutting off of craving and clinging. Whatever faults I have until I attain liberation, may they quickly perish. Wherever I am born, may there be an upright mind, mindfulness and wisdom, simplicity and vigor. May harmful influences not weaken my efforts. The Buddha is the unexcelled protector. The Dharma is the supreme protection. Peerless is the silent Buddha. The Sangha is my true refuge. By the power of these supreme ones, may I rise above all ignorance. So let's sit for a moment and share these blessings together. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited.
So, please, this is a really rich time in the retreat. There's a few days, a few days to practice. Make it the beginning of a retreat, a short retreat that you're starting off very present for. Use the time, put your heart into it. The Dharma is waiting, inviting you to discover it. Enjoy the retreat and really bring a fullness to it. So, there'll be a sitting in about 40 minutes or so. Maybe we can do some, um, <coughs> some chanting or something. Have you thought of that? Uh, Jack or uh, somebody will chant. <laughs> and then uh, late night sitting. Please, would somebody take that on and be an inspiration? Okay, thank you, Ron. And if you find yourself with energy, continue. It's very interesting to sit when the hall is, uh, is empty or there are a few people here. It's cool too, Jack says, yeah. And if you wake up early in the morning, don't be shy to come on in. Just see what it's like to sit here. It's, it's one of my favorite things to sit here in an empty place and feel the flow as the bodies come in to greet the day. Find your own rhythm of practice that works for you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.